The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 14 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 14 this morning. The word of our God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here. This would be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. It would be a natural mistake to misunderstand today's passage as though it is about a dispute of applying the law of God between Jesus and the Pharisees in terms of how we ought to obey, that is, how we ought to observe the Sabbath day. That would be natural, but it would be fundamentally mistaken. As Jesus makes clear, this morning's passage is about genuine discipleship. In particular, it is about how faithful disciples seek to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of their God and how they seek to walk as closely with Jesus Christ as they possibly can. That is, they need to live according to the written word, but also with reverence for the incarnate word. Faithful disciples seek to live a Christ-centered and a word-saturated life. We are going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, sola scriptura. Second, mercy triumphs over judgment. Third, greater than the temple. And fourth, hated without a cause. Let me give you those four headings again. First, sola scriptura. Second, mercy triumphs over judgment. Third, greater than the temple, and fourth, hated without a cause. Uh, Before we dive in, we need to set the scene. Uh, Look at verse 1 with me. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So if you want a biblical justification for taking a nature walk on the Sabbath day, here it is, right? Jesus is doing it with his disciples. Now, some of his disciples are hungry. 
So they're walking through the grain fields and, and they begin just to pluck the heads of the grain and grind it in their hands and eat some of it. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but let me tell you, those disciples must have been mighty hungry. I mean, that's a good way to break a tooth, eating raw, unground grain. But there they were. And I want to say that, at least to me, and I think for most people, this is just a beautiful picture. Here are these young men, relaxed on the Sabbath day, walking with the Lord, just enjoying themselves. Who could possibly object to them doing that? Well, before we get to that, we ought to notice the introductory expression. At that time. Um, what that does is it connects us with what came right before. So, so just look back to the very end of Matthew chapter 11, the last two verses. And we're going to see what this passage is being connected with. There Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Beloved, that is what the Sabbath is all about. As I often like to put it, the Sabbath is God's invitation for us to enter into his divine rest in the midst of our human restlessness. Right? It's to take Christ's light yoke upon us. Now, sadly, religious people throughout history, not just in ancient Israel, have taken Christ's light and easy yoke that is intended to be a delight and have turned it into a burden. Right? They've turned it into something that you've got to work really hard to achieve rather than seeing it as a gift of God's grace. Worse than that, sometimes it's an opportunity to judge and condemn other people because they don't observe Christ's gift to us the way that we do according to our church or family traditions. And that certainly is what's going on here. I asked the question, who could possibly look at a group of young men relaxing and enjoying themselves as they walk through a grain field and find something to complain about? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. So here's a simple question for you. Was it lawful or not? You know, walking through someone else's grain field, plucking up their grain and eating it. Was that unlawful according to the law of Moses? Well, I say that's a simple question, but you guys probably haven't been browsing through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on this week trying to answer that question. Um, the answer is no. I mean, you might be wondering about eating the, the fruit in someone else's field, but actually the book of Deuteronomy explicitly says if you're out walking through someone else's vineyard or someone else's grain field, you are totally free to eat some of the grapes or pluck some of the grain and eat it. What you can't do is put a sickle to it, right? You can't harvest it. You can't take a bag and carry it home with you. But while you're walking, you know, grab a few grapes, or in this case, a handful of grain. That is entirely lawful. What the Pharisees are apparently doing is they're saying, that's work. Just take a little bit of grain. Now, I think it should be obvious to you, if your view of the Sabbath is you can eat a banana on the Sabbath, but you can't peel it, you've really run off the reservation. 
That is not what God's word says. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, what is perhaps most remarkable about the Sabbath and Sabbath law and Second Temple period of Judaism is the contrast between the basic brief statements found in the Old Testament on the one hand, and on the other hand, the increasingly elaborate traditions that have been built up around the Sabbath observance by the time of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. What I want you to focus on there is the word traditions that have been built up. As Jesus says elsewhere, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, Here's a key point. Legalism is not about loving the law too much. That is not what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of. He doesn't say, you know, your problem is you're, you're taking this all too literally, too seriously. Legalism is not about loving the law of God too much. Uh, by the way, brothers, you can't do that. You sisters either, right? Uh, think about David in the Old Testament. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. You cannot love God's word too much. The problem with the Pharisees is not they love the law too much and they paid too much attention to it. As Jesus is going to make clear, their problem is they didn't love the law nearly enough. Not only did they not understand some of it, that flowed out of the fact that they were trying to use the law for something other than what it was intended to do. See, God has revealed himself to us in Scripture so we will know him, so we will know his will, so we will live in accordance with his will. And the Pharisees had turned the law into something that showed that they were better than other people, which is really weird when you realize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And the thing to realize, of course, is, is this is not just a problem in ancient Israel with the Pharisees. Right? But this is a problem that has run throughout church history, and we need to make sure it is not something in our own hearts. The legalist seeks to use the law to vindicate him or herself while condemning others. So please pay attention to how our Lord responds. Our Lord does not respond to legalism by saying they're taking the word of God too seriously. Um, Rather, what the Lord does is he says, have you not read twice? And then he quotes scripture a third time. Jesus is applying scripture to show that they're wrong, right? The, the answer for legalism is not that they're taking the law too seriously. It's that they have not taken it seriously enough. And that's why I call this section sola scriptura, because it's taking God's word as being God's word and not elevating traditions and putting it on the same level. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Jesus says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. See, the Pharisees say it is not lawful, but they mean according to their traditions, their oral law, not according to the word of God. And as I say, this is not simply a Jewish problem. Uh, this is a problem that always occurs. It's a natural thing to occur for fallen human beings. So all through church history, we've had the problem of encrusted traditions being elevated to a place of authority. 
By the way, modern Judaism, this is still true. If you talk to a guy who's trying to be a faithful modern Jew, he's going to tell you that the oral law is every bit as important as the written law. I just read this from a very famous rabbi who passed away, I think, last year, Rabbi Lord Sachs, who made that very point. Of course, he was making it as a good point. Uh, we see from Jesus it's actually a problem. Well, you're probably not tempted by Jewish rabbis, but you have to think about how this comes up in the church. Um, think of uh, how this developed in Roman Catholicism. There are traditions. We're going to have traditions. Traditions are good. And then people start saying, you better keep the traditions. And by the way, if you don't keep the traditions, it's a sin. So for centuries, now this wasn't just a one-off thing, for centuries, eating meat on Friday was considered a sin in Roman Catholicism. By the way, all the way up until 1966. In fact, eating meat during Lent was also considered a sin, and it was treated so seriously that European rulers, over the course of centuries, would sometimes punish it with the death penalty. A tradition of men. Uh, by the way, if you ever have heard about the affair of the sausages, this is really what kind of sparks the, the Reformation in um, Zurich with Zwingli, is in uh, 1522, a group of people go out and they intentionally and publicly eat smoked sausage during Lent. And we read that and go, that's kind of a funny way to protest. Do you understand? They were actually taking their life in their hands because of how tradition had been applied. Well, you have to think about this in your own life and in our church, right? Traditions themselves are good. It's nice that you have things you've done in your family that your grandparents did that you pass on to your children and so on. That's going to happen in the life of this church like every other church. What we need to remember is they are simply our traditions. They are not the word of God. They are not to be imposed on other people. And we are not to condemn other people because they don't happen to see it or do it the way that we do. As you can hear, Jesus will not allow this elevation of man-made tradition for a moment. Twice our Lord thunders, have you not read? Right, that's an appeal to scripture. Then in verse 7, Jesus will pointedly quote God's word to make clear that the Pharisees are entirely and culpably wrong in their condemnation of his disciples. See, Jesus in his own life modeled what it was like to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We think of that probably most notably when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he actually quotes that verse from Deuteronomy. He, he lived it out. He's calling us to live it out too, right? Sola Scriptura. God's word and God's word alone can bind the human conscience. Uh, we should also pay attention, though, to the three passages which Jesus refers to. First, Jesus asks, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Well, as you can imagine, the story of David's flight from King Saul would have been known to everyone in ancient Israel. Now, David had already been anointed to be king, but Saul was still on the throne. And Saul has a horrible, horrible, jealous rage against David. You know, he hears the women singing, Saul was slain as thousands, David is tens of thousands, and no king really likes that all that much. And Saul liked it uh, less than most. And so David and Jonathan, his good friend, Saul's son, uh, they have a test 
David doesn't go to sit with the king. He's supposed to go with him his high holy days. And three days in a row, he doesn't sit there. And Saul is so enraged, he takes a spear and tries to pin his own son, Jonathan, to the wall. And so David flees. He knows that Saul's out to get him. And he flees to Nob, and there he meets with the high priest, Elimelech. And um, while he's fleeing in haste, he has made no provisions. And, and he shows up, and um, he sees the priest, Elimelech, and he says, do you have any food here? And Elimelech says, we don't have anything except for the showbread, the bread of presence. It's in the tabernacle, which according to the law, only the priests are supposed to eat. It's set apart for very special purposes. And Elimelech says, here's the bread. And Jesus goes, was, was Elimelech right? I mean, how do you read that story? Well, actually, what Jesus is saying is, of course Elimelech was right. See, if you read the law in a different way, you forgot it's our father's law. How does the father look at his children? Right? Does God the father look at his hungry children and say, I'd rather have you hungry than do something a little different than the ceremonial law intended under ordinary circumstances? Of course our Father in heaven doesn't think that way. And to condemn them is to show that you don't understand your Father's heart at all. The very thing that God's law is intended to reveal. Feeding the people of God in need takes priority over fulfilling the ceremonial law. That's important to get, but Jesus is actually setting himself up to make an extraordinarily bold claim with his second and third questions. Second, Jesus directs their attention to the work of the priests. He says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, the Pharisees are all worked up because Jesus' disciples, as they're just walking through the field on the Sabbath day, are plucking a little bit of grain and eating it. Right? Like, that's work. He goes, if you consider the priests, and by the way, you have to realize, because we live in the 21st century, uh, don't imagine when you think about the priests that they were in some nice air-conditioned sanitary environment, wearing nice clothes and just having a nice easy time of, of doing these beautiful ceremonies for the people. They were outdoors in the heat, butchering animals. Um, you got to think of them as getting hot and sweaty and bloody. And by the time the day was over, they needed a bath because they smelled really, really badly. And Jesus goes, you're upset with my disciples doing this. Well, what about the priests? They do that on the Sabbath day. And of course, everybody would answer, well, they have to. It's a work of necessity. In order for people to worship at the temple, we need the priests there to do it. And that's actually the point if you put those two texts together. For David, it's a deed of mercy. For the priests, it's a work of necessity. And that's what the Bible teaches. The people of God are supposed to do deeds of mercy and works of necessity on the Sabbath day. But please note that's not all Jesus is drawing our attention to. He says, of course you do that, because the temple is absolutely central to our religion. But something greater than the temple is here. Do you understand how bold that is? I mean, the temple is standing there. And the temple is the very center of Jewish life, politically and religiously. It's where God symbolically dwelt in the midst of his people. 
It's where you had to go to offer up these sacrifices to the Lord. Right? It's the very center of the life. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm more important than they are. Do you see how jarring that would be to a first century Jew? Hold that thought as we look at our Lord's climatic third point in verses 6 through 8. Please look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had not known, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Just two things. Um, First, Jesus is drawing our attention to the words of Hosea 6, verse 6. Uh, The ESV translates that, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And then in the New Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But we get the point. Those two things go together. And the point in Hosea is that the powerful were abusing the poor. We saw that in our Old Covenant reading from Isaiah today. Right? The, the people were treating the poor. They were oppressing them. I mean, they were you know, keeping some outward acts of a ceremonial law. And then they're going to God and saying, look, I fasted. Why aren't you blessing me? And God says, well, is that the kind of fast I desire? I mean, is that the kind of Sabbath-keeping I desire? It's my heart as the covenant God of my people that my people are going to manifest who I am like, and therefore they are going to show steadfast love and mercy to one another. See, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that if their heart is wrong towards God, and he's made the point that their heart's wrong toward God because they're condemning the innocent, his own disciples, If their heart is wrong toward God, it does not matter how fastidious they are with the ceremonial law. God will not be pleased with it. And second, the really daring thing Jesus says is to point out that he is greater than the temple. Uh, As I pointed out just a moment ago, the temple was still standing. It was the absolute center of Jewish life. But that is not all Jesus says. He says, don't you understand how the law works? The law is a revelation of who God is. God isn't under the law. God is always sovereign over the law, right? Everyone should grant that God is in charge of all the regulations around the temple, and he's in charge of the Sabbath. And do you know what? Me too. Do you get how daring that is? See, for those who have ears to hear, when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am. And God. Well, not surprisingly, the Pharisees were not entirely thrilled by that. First, Jesus insists in this passage on Sola Scriptura that we live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God and not by human traditions. Second, Jesus insists that mercy triumphs over judgment. And third, Jesus insists that he is greater than the temple, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath which is to say he's the Lord of everything. How will the Pharisees respond? Well, we only see their ultimate response after Jesus moves the conversation over into their local synagogue. Look look with me at verses 9 and 10. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. 
Isn't that astonishing? They're in the synagogue. There's a man there whose hands all withered up. And, and Jesus has just told them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That is, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And instead of showing mercy on this man that has a withered arm, they say, we're going to use him as a prop to accuse Jesus. That, that's how hard their hearts are. I do want to say this does reveal how utterly consumed they were with their animosity toward Jesus. But I also want to say it's a warning for us. Um, when you become fixated, that, that's wrong. When we become fixated, I'm part of this problem. When we become fixated on showing that we are right about winning an argument, we can lose sight of what we're doing. It can blind us so that anything that makes it seem like I'm right now becomes justified. Even something as crass as this. The only way we can stay on track is if we focus by God's grace on loving the Lord and loving our neighbor and on giving thanks to God. Right? That, that, that's something that we need to take to heart ourselves. But as I say, uh, it does show their utter animosity against Jesus. You know, Jesus goes around opening the eyes of the blind, healing the sick, teaching people God's ways, proclaiming the gospel. And they hated him. They hated him without a cause. Once again, Jesus responds by rightly teaching and applying the word of God. Verses 11 through 13. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. Jesus could not have said it any clearer. Uh, the logic is irrefutable. If you had a sheep and it falls into a ditch... You're going to get it out. And you should. right? That's the right thing to do. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? They don't try to refute him. They don't argue with him. There is no arguing with this. Jesus is clearly, transparently correct. And then Jesus does an astonishing miracle. I was telling Kristen this morning, I think sometimes we're so familiar with the number of astonishing miracles that Jesus does, we kind of read that and just kind of go check the box. But put yourself in there for a moment. You're in the synagogue. There's this man there with a withered hand. And, and Jesus simply gives the command. He just says the word. And, and his two arms are identical. Right? Healed like that. I mean, wouldn't you be in awe of Jesus? Even if that doesn't create genuine faith in your hearts, which only the Holy Spirit could do, uh, we might have expected the people to respond at least with a sense of religious enthusiasm, like, like those on uh, Mount Carmel do. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But that is not how they respond at all. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You want to know the depths of human sin? When God himself took on human flesh and came into this world, 
we hated him without a cause. Psalm 2 tells us about this. The rulers of this world take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, narrowly speaking, this this passage does teach us some important truths about the Sabbath day and about the ceremonial law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. This uh, This means that remembering that the Sabbath day is God's gracious gift to us. It is his invitation to us to enter into his divine rest in the midst of our human restlessness. And it also means remembering that our rest cannot keep us from doing works of mercy and works of necessity. After all, the whole point of the law is that we'll be like our Father in heaven. We'll reflect him into the world. And if God shows mercy to people in need, we're to do that on the Sabbath as well. More broadly, we see that Christ is the goal of the law. Uh, We're therefore to be Christ-centered, right? There is one greater than the temple here. There is one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who's called us to be his disciples. We are therefore to be Christ-centered and word-saturated as his disciples. And and I do need to say those things always go together. Um, If you just imagine that you're a Christ-centered person, but you don't care what Jesus Christ actually says to you in the written word, You're kidding yourself, right? To be Christ-centered means you're saying, yes, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. But correspondingly, if you imagine yourself to be a a word-saturated person, and what you're actually doing is puffing yourself up with knowledge, it's an academic exercise, or worse, it's an opportunity for you to demonstrate you're better than other people, right? Because you can quote the Bible a little bit better than they do. Well... You're going to find that that word on the day of judgment will stand against you. The word is not intended for us to puff ourselves up. For Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The point of God's word is to lead us to know Jesus better and to follow him with greater faithfulness. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And perhaps we should widen the lens all the way out so that we can see the end of the story. Yes, the nations do rage, and the peoples do plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.